It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Winnigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Michael Steindl. Today we're going to be talking to Mark Butler, the Federal Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Mark has just written a new book called Climate Wars. At a time, as he states, we are all coming perilously close to the point of no return as a consequence of climate change. Mark, welcome to the show. We very much appreciate you making the time to talk to us and to our listeners. Great pleasure. Firstly, congratulations on the book. It's a very well-thought-out, informative mini-tome, providing solutions in many areas of Australian industry and delving into the past decade of climate mismanagement in Australia. Thanks very much. It was a a, a great um, exercise to write it. Obviously, it's um, intending to uh, lay out Labor's plans for the future, but I don't think you can really um, set out plans for the future without reflecting on a decade of of real disappointment and loss, I think, in terms of opportunity for us to start the decarbonisation agenda. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree with you. According to the cover notes on the book, You argue that Labor is the only party with a proven track record for national reform and has the plan and the will to ensure bold action before it's too late. That's music to my ears, and I'm sure to all BZE listeners, as BZE is a member of the Climate Emergency Network. Can you briefly outline your bold action plan in terms of emissions targets? Well, we adopted uh, our medium-term emissions target of, uh, to the year 2030 from the Climate Change Authority report, which was a 45% reduction on 2005 levels. Uh, we've also stated as a matter of policy that Australia must be net zero emissions by 2050 to be consistent with the international goal of ensuring that global warming does not exceed two degrees Celsius. Now, the Paris Agreement in 2015 slightly rephrased that to... Uh, to be an international target of keeping global warming well below two degrees, which is slightly different wording, which the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is now working through to see what that means in terms of a a carbon budget. And as I'm sure your listeners know as well, there was a more qualified commitment around um, a 1.5 degree threshold as well that was certainly litigated very heavily by small island states and a number of other NGOs. Does that mean that the Labor Party may adjust its targets depending on the Paris directions? Well, no, we've stuck to a target that was set out by the Climate Change Authority. Uh, We think the longer term, the mid-century target is very important, a net zero emissions target. And I think you've seen some commentary from a range of groups, including some in business since the release of the Finkel report, Mm -hmm. uh, really amplifying the need for there to be a long-term investment target as well as that medium-term date that we've been talking about now for some years, unfortunately, of 2030. The date of 2030 
gets closer and closer. And frankly, the the task of getting sharp or deep cuts in our emissions gets harder and harder because what we've seen is emissions actually increasing over the last several years, That's particularly right. since the repeal of the clean energy package and particularly the carbon price mechanism. Mm. That um, long-term view, of course, has really been highlighted by the, the RET and the 2020 end and the, the destruction that's done in the investment. Mark, you've broken the book into very distinct sections, firstly trying to make sense of climate change and then discussing the recent political history and, and doing our fair share. From then on, we were delighted to note that the chapters basically mimic a series of reports that Visa D has done. Um, you discuss renewable energy, land use, energy efficiency, transport, low-carbon communities and manufacturing and mining in a low-carbon world. Can we start with land use? The BCD Land Use Report found that Australia could accomplish both sufficient mitigation and sufficient uh, sequestration to be net zero in 10 years. You do say that rural and regional Australia will bear the greatest impact with climate change and that between 50 and 70% of carbon has been lost from cultivated soils, so a strong response is critical. What would that response comprise for you? Well, essentially it has two two legs for us. The first is to get broad-scale land clearing back under control. I think the most important environmental protection reform, certainly in my lifetime, perhaps ever in Australia, was the decision in Queensland to regulate the clearing of native vegetation, remnant vegetation, and that was a decision taken by Peter Beattie's government and then built on by Anna Bly, who also put in place restrictions on the clearing of high-value regrowth, so areas that might have been cleared in the past but had been allowed to regrow for a period of at least 20 years. And it's a matter of record just how important that was in getting carbon pollution levels down over the course, particularly of the 2000s. I mean, you remember that in 1990, uh, land clearing uh, was responsible for about a quarter of Australia's entire carbon pollution footprint, an extraordinary mm-hmm. amount, about mm-hmm. 140, 145 million tonnes. Yeah. <laughs> and and that, that reduction was, in, was really the only reason why we were able to satisfy our Kyoto Protocol commitments. But the reversal of those reforms the by... Clause. That's right, the Australia Clause. But the reversal of those reforms by Campbell Newman's LNP government has led, we think, to a tripling, at least a tripling of broad-scale land clearing in Queensland and a very sharp increase in carbon pollution levels. Now, I, don't, I won't even go into the broader environmental benefits of those reforms mm-hmm. by Peter Beattie and Anna Bly in terms of the protection of biodiversity, the extraordinary number of animals that were being killed by the method of clearing, and the fact that the Queensland Auditor-General has shown in his report that the tripling of, of land clearing in the Great Barrier Reef catchment areas since uh, Campbell Newman's um, vandalism, really, of those reforms has put even more pressure on our World Heritage property, which is already under such an enormous stress. So that's the first leap. We've got to get that that clearing back under control. It's a particular issue in Queensland, but we've also seen the New South Wales Liberal government overturn Bob Carr's reforms, Mm -hmm. which were of the same vein as Peter Beattie's and Anna Bly's, some changes in Western Australia under the Barnett government and things like that as well. The second is to take, a op- take advantage of the enormous opportunities in carbon farming, provided you get the economic incentives right and create a, a market there. We had done that, the carbon farming initiative under the clean energy package of uh, Julia Gillard and Greg Combes was the only element of our broad climate change response 
that attracted bipartisan support from Tony Abbott. And I think there is a good basis there for setting up that market in a way that allows farmers in Australia and also traditional owners in the north of the country through savannah burning projects to do really wonderful things for their natural environment, wonderful things for our carbon footprint, but also set up a very economically beneficial market for the land sector of Australia. And flowing directly on from that, the single most impressive thing I think about you for me is that you actually lived this. You turned vegetarian 10 years ago for climate change reasons, is that correct? Well, well about 10 years ago, yep, yeah. um, nine or 10 years ago. I, I still eat some fish, but yeah. all, all land based animals <laughs> I decided. <brave>. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I just I, I decided that was a way that I could keep up a, a protein based diet that, um, that was consistent with my lifestyle so of doing a lot of travel. But certainly I think, um, you know, there are questions obviously about around our lifestyle uh, relating to the land sector that, that um, developed countries need to think about. Just getting back to that first point you made about land use, that's a state government regulation. How would you change that if you were in government? Well, we reflected on this uh, for a period of time and engaged with stakeholders. I, I think that what happened in Queensland and to a slightly lesser degree in New South Wales has triggered a national interest. Uh, you know, it, it does bear directly upon our existing Kyoto Protocol commitments, which is an international mm. treaty entered into by the Australian Government and the Australian Parliament on behalf of the nation, and it will bear on our ability to implement or, or discharge our commitments under the Paris Agreement. So it really triggers the external affairs power in a very similar way to the way in which Gough Whitlam um, really intervened in Joe Bjorki-Peterson's plans to mm -hmm. drill for oil on the Great Barrier Reef, a World Heritage property, uh, triggering international obligations by the Australian Government, and obviously, a little bit more recently, Bob Hawke's decision to intervene in the uh, Tasmanian Government's plans in 82-83 to dam the Gordon River below the Franklin, mm -hmm. again, based on our international obligations as an Australian Government. That's how I now see this question of the protection of our land sector, it does trigger a national interest, international obligations that the Australian Parliament has freely entered into, including, frankly, Malcolm Turnbull's decision, which I support, to sign the Paris Agreement, is actually impacted by this decision. Now, that doesn't mean the Australian Government should get involved in micromanaging land, mm -hmm. land use, but I think there have to be some national rules that reflect, reflect our international obligations as well, frankly, as our obligations to future generations to use our land resources in a way that's consistent with our climate change issues. You mentioned the Franklin Dam, and we're now calling the Adani coal mine this century's Franklin Dam issue. What's the determination of the Labor government with regard to the Adani mine? Should it go ahead? Well, the issue before the Commonwealth, uh, there is um, a question of whether or not... Um, additional finance is provided by the Commonwealth Government to the company, particularly in the form of a concessional loan through the, through the North Australia Infrastructure Facility, and, and Labor doesn't support that. Uh, we don't support any particular subsidy given to the Adani mine or, frankly, any other coal mine for that matter. Uh, beyond that, there, there's really a question of... A, there's a matter of opinion about whether this is a good or a bad thing or whether it's a viable project or not. I've said a number of times publicly I don't think the Adani mine is in the national interest. I don't think the commercial premise and, you know, for some boosters of the, the project, the moral premise that is advanced in favour of the mine 
is is valid. Uh, I'm lectured time and time again by by Liberal ministers that we have a moral imperative to open this mine to send more thermal coal to India to power their electrification policy. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all well and good, except the Indian government has made it very clear that they don't want more Australian thermal coal or thermal coal from any other country for that matter. They're in a process of sharply reducing their thermal coal imports. They've already reduced them by about 35% since 2015 and they have a policy of phasing them out altogether over the next few years. They have a very ambitious policy for electrifying villages and households, which I follow follow very closely, and it's based heavily on the the deployment of renewable energy. Mm -hmm. Their electricity plan that they released in uh, December for the next 10 years has incredibly ambitious renewable energy targets and uh, a commitment not to building or or an indication that they won't be building any new coal-fired power stations, at least over that 10-year period. So the premise, or really the the commercial premise particularly of this project, uh, isn't valid. And uh, and I I think it's very clear, based on all the advice that I've received, that if by some chance this mine starts to produce thermal coal, relatively low-quality coal for that matter, but it does that because Malcolm Turnbull has thrown a whole bunch of money at it, then it will only simply displace existing coal operations um, elsewhere in Australia, most probably in in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. Now, that's not necessarily a matter for the Queensland Government, but as a national representative, I don't think that's in the national interest. I don't think it will... It's not going to increase the amount of coal that India imports or the amount of coal that India burns. They've got their own electricity plan. It would simply, if it goes ahead, displace an existing coal operation somewhere else and lead to the loss of existing coal jobs somewhere else. So you've said um, you don't think it's a sensible proposal in the national interest and you don't intend to fund it, but that's different from actually intending to stop it. And from our point of view, the science says there's no cut budget left. Every kilogram that goes up has got to come down. Opening the world's biggest coal mine at the end of the coal era is, is nonsense. Um, is there any possibility Labor would go further and actively try to stop this? Well, it's it's not going. It's not go, if it does go ahead. It's not going to lead, I don't think, to the amount of coal that's being um, produced and exported from Australia because you know there, there's a zero sum game here, um, chasing a shrink, cha- chasing a shrinking market. Yeah. And I think the International Energy Agency's report on world investment was only released over the last few days confirms that right across the world. China and India most most significantly, given their size, but Southeast Asia, the, the three main markets for our thermal coal, which are Japan, Korea and Taiwan, the so-called JKT markets, um, other parts of Southeast Asia, certainly the United States, all the big thermal coal markets are sharply reducing their plans for new coal investment, and many of them are actually curtailing their existing coal generation. So... So really, this is this is a zero-sum game in a shrinking market. I think if if globally thermal coal was in high demand and there was a big expansion of coal-fired generation, there would be a very difficult, frankly, very difficult debate for us to have about about our role in that process. Mm. But it's a market that is shrinking before our eyes, and you know I don't. I've said what I've said about the Adani coal mine, but. But um, we need to recognise that this is largely being driven by the shrinkage of a market overseas. Now, what you'll get is different companies seeking to maintain market share in that shrinking market, and that's obviously what the Adani company is seeking to do against other companies. But it doesn't present, I don't think, exactly the same sort of issue we're dealing with with the land sector, which is an issue of 
of expanding carbon pollution footprint directly under our control. Interesting perspective, yeah. It is interesting because I think they said that if the Galilee Basin goes ahead and gets developed, it will be the fifth largest CO2-producing location in the whole world. Mm. So it actually will increase carbon emissions well but that, that well it, it well that, that all assumes that the existing thermal coal basins that are currently operating and a new coal basin in the Galilee are, are going to be used um, that there's a market for that coal and I think every indication um, as I said only only in the last several days from the IEA would indicate that that's not right. China mm. is reducing its use yeah. of coal-fired generation. India's made its plans clear. United States has shut about 200, 240 of its coal-fired generators yes. out of 520 since 2010. Now, those three countries alone account for three-quarters of the world's coal consumption. Mm. Um, so so I, I, I completely understand people's um, uh, concern about the possibility of opening up a virgin coal basin, but I think really the the market realities of the thermal coal export market, the seaborne market in particular, is precisely why most of the other companies that had licences in the Galilee have walked away from it, because they, they know there's no, there's no growth in the thermal coal market. Now, Australia will probably be um, the last supplier of thermal coal into the export market globally left standing because we're a stable provider, we have very high quality coal, particularly coming out of the Hunter Valley. But that doesn't mean that there is there is there is room in the global market for a new coal basin. I think that's all of the advice I've been given. For those of you who have just joined us, this is the BZE Climate Solutions Show, and we're talking to Mark Butler, the Federal Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy, and we're talking about his latest book called Climate Wars. Mark, you identify that the Paris Agreement establishes a global market for carbon credits from 2020 which will, for the first time, be open to Australian businesses to participate as buyers rather than sellers. Can you explain that further and what the implications well, of that are? Well, sellers rellers? rather than buyers, I think, is oh, the really sorry, interesting sellers. thing yeah. about this. So, so for some years under Kyoto, there, there's been a mechanism that would allow developed countries to buy what used to be called Kyoto units or, or um, clean development mechanism units that were produced by developing countries. It was intended as, I guess, a bit of a finance transfer mechanism where developed countries could help finance projects in in developing countries that were aimed at sort of... Such as they stop cleaning down a forest and we, that's get, right, that's we pay right. them for that. Avoided deforestation, uh, renewable energy projects, a range of other things yes. like that. And it, it has, I think, um, after a, maybe a slightly rocky start become a very credible market, uh, which was probably oversupplied a bit so that the price of those units was very, very cheap. Beyond 2020, you can't buy those units. So so until now, Australia's only been a buyer as a developed country. Uh, those units will effectively disappear from 2020 and a new market will, will be put in its place to cover the Paris period, uh, where um, developed and developing countries can both buy and sell. And what I think that that opens up as an opportunity into the future comes back to the point I was making about carbon farming, and that is that Australia's land sector is big and sophisticated and well-developed beyond really any other country I can think of. And there will be a thirst by a number of other countries, I think, including countries like China, I suspect, as they build their national emissions trading scheme, for companies um, from, from countries like that to buy permits from a market like Australia. 
Uh, obviously, there will be a demand for domestic offsets in Australia. So, so those sorts of, of land sector offsets, carbon offsets, um, produced in Australia, sold to Australian companies in the industrial sector, for, for example. But I, th- I think ultimately, if this market develops well, uh, it will become an export opportunity, an export income opportunity for the land sector in Australia, which is very exciting. Having said that, um, this mechanism is still um, very vague uh, and the design work on what this market will look like has only really just begun after the after the Paris Agreement was reached 18 months ago. There's a fair bit of work still to do on it. You highlight in your book Mark, that cement is a critically important product um, but highly emissions intensive. From BZD work, um, we quote it as 8% of global emissions. I think your book quotes a bit lower figure and yet it's received very little attention from policymakers aside from you. Coincidentally, and you may not know this, but in early August, BZD is releasing its Rethinking Cement report that we've been working on for a couple of years, um, a report that shows zero-carbon cement is achievable and affordable and that Australia can lead the world with alternative cements. With the proviso that you haven't yet seen this fabulous report, <laughs> which <laughs> government do you, um, look to implement BZD's plan and, and driving much-needed innovation in industry and, and use of cement? Well, obviously, I haven't read the report, so I can't give you a definitive answer about that, but I think it's fantastic that BZE is doing this sort of work. I think in the book I I point particularly to steel and cement Mm -hmm. as uh, as two two, um, Mm. indispensable products in modern society that are are inherently carbon-intensive. Now, you can can obviously um, produce steel through the recycling process, Mm -hmm. through arc furnaces that don't require the burning of coking coal, but... There is a limit to the market share that that sort of steel is going to be able to achieve, probably, I think, around 30% or around a third of the, the market. Uh, cement, though, is is probably even trickier. Um, well, I thought it was trickier until BZE told <laughs> oh, me it's not so tricky. Um, the the, the um, production of clinker is, is carbon-intensive, and I think mm-hmm. the industry itself really has been grappling with ways in which they can get that carbon intensity down through clinker substitution and so on and so forth yeah. and using different types of energy and stuff. So if and BZE and engineers... Polymer, um, geopolymer. Geopolymer. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, look, really, um, really this is an area... These are areas where Australia should be a leader and that, mm. that's the point I try to make through the book is you get over the climate wars, depoliticise the... the foundation of good decarbonisation policy and there's every reason to think that Australia can lead in a whole range of these agendas whether it's decarbonising some of these industrial processes or leading in renewable energy deployment because of our extraordinary resources here the innovation that we that we can continue to, to pursue through our very clever scientists in universities, CSIRO, businesses and so on and so forth but we can't do any of this while we're still arguing over the fundamental premise of, of doing it at all. So BZE's um, reports on all of the areas that I've talked about, high-speed rail, which Anthony Albanese is out talking about again mm-hmm. through op-eds, these are incredibly important contributions, but they're contributions that probably won't have um, the impact that we would all like them to have while we're still arguing over the fundamental premise. Mm-hmm. So in the transport section, you say that each Australian generates about four tonnes of carbon pollution per annum just from transport which is more than Mexico's total carbon footprint. The Australian government has just rejected upgrading our vehicle emission standards to match the mandatory fuel efficiency standards that 80% of global light vehicle market is adhering to. So how can Labor make this work? 
Well, our policy was very clear uh, at the last election. The Climate Change Authority, the Climate Change Authority in 2014, um, issued a report essentially, so more than three years ago, issued a report essentially advising that Australia simply adopt the US model, uh, which is a model that started in California. Um, engendered fairly furious argument with the car industry there, but ultimately was spread through President Obama to the rest of the US. You see similar standards in Canada, slightly stricter standards in the UK and the EU, but they're all over the world, really. So the, the, the authority took the view that Australia's car fleet is most comparable to America's in terms of the size of cars and the type of cars we drive. And if we adopted the Obama model, phased in over several years we'd get over the course of the 2020s as much as a 45% reduction in carbon pollution per kilometre travel. And given that all of the global car companies now are working to these standards, or slightly stricter standards in Europe's case, there really shouldn't be a difficulty in doing this. Unfortunately, I say this as, as someone coming from a state with a strong car industry, the closure of car manufacturing in Australia has made it slightly even less complicated than perhaps it would have been a few, a few years ago. So why the government has sat on this report for three years is utterly beyond me. I mean, this is low-hanging fruit. It's an easy thing to do. Um, they muddled it over the last couple of weeks uh, in a way that I still don't entirely understand because had they simply come out and said, we'll just adopt the US model, we'll adopt the advice of the Climate Change Authority, I would have stood up and applauded and we would have given them complete support to do mm. that in a way that would have been you know, rolled out over a period mm. of time. But ultimately, according to the advice of the authority, would have led to a $7,000 cost saving for mm. consumers over the life of a car because mm. of the very exactly. significant fuel savings that are involved. Instead of the News Corp headlines are a $7,000 increase. Carbon <laughs> carnage and it's all yeah. sort of the, the, the usual sort of rubbish you get from yeah. too much of our media. And I think that was an important first stage mm. in cleaning up our transport sector until we get to a point of uh, essentially no emissions, zero emissions vehicles uh, and electric vehicles being cost competitive, which I think we'll see over the course of the 2020s. Mm -hmm. So you've got to get that foundation in place now to clean up our internal combustion engine fleet. And then, as VZE knows, there's, there's another generation of cleaning up transport that comes beyond that for light vehicles. And we also have to start to look at some of the ambitious projects like um, high-speed rail to take yes. pressure off our aviation yes. system. Lead straight into ah, the next yes, that's question. right. Well, we're going to talk about electrification because that is the next step, isn't it? Mm. So if um, we, we can even actually frog leap these emission issues by electrifying our vehicle system. Provided we clean up our electricity system, of course. Yes. At yeah. the same time, yeah. cleaning up our electricity system, correct. Which is possible. So... We're actually, we're going to leave aside the electrification, saying vehicles, cars, buses, trucks, that is available, and um, notwithstanding that Australia has been abysmally poor in, in all the developed countries in terms of support of that, um, we've got to the extent that we've got a total of 5,000 electric vehicles in the whole country, historically. But as you've just raised for us, the aviation industry, um, Melbourne-Sydney route is the third or fourth busiest in the world. We've got our fly-in, fly-out. Um, yeah, so even Brisbane, even Brisbane-Sydney is in the top is, 12. That's right, yeah. yes. Uh, so plans to tackle aviation, the high-speed rail? Is well, as I said, Anthony Albanese, who was the, the transport minister in the government that really put in place the building blocks for high-speed rail, and BZE was a really important contributor to that national debate, I think, um, several years ago. Uh, the, the, the plans we put in place 
space included corridor acquisition, really bringing all of the different government, state and local together so that we could have a single planning process. It's all fallen off the edge of the table under this mm. government and Anthony only today I think is out with op-eds really trying to create some new momentum around this. I mean this should be the sort of thing Malcolm Turnbull um, grasps with both hands. I mean that's the sort of future looking um, project that, that I thought people thought Malcolm Turnbull mm. would go for yeah. and it really it will do a whole bunch of things around um, really stimulating regional economies uh, through, the, through the corridor but take real pressure off those aviation routes. I mean there is, there is not a single aviation route in North America or Europe that is as busy as mid- Sydney, Melbourne or even as busy as Sydney, Brisbane. I think that's a jaw-dropping statistic. And given the growth projected in population for those cities, I mean, Sydney and Melbourne both growing to be 8 million person cities uh, by the middle of this century, we've got to find ways to take pressure off those air routes. You call energy efficiency the fifth fuel after coal, gas, nuclear and renewables. And like BZD, you appreciate the most effective and by far the cheapest way of reducing emissions and at the same time lowering costs. Against that, in 2016, Australia was rated overall the poorest performing developed nation measured in International Energy Efficiency Scorecard. Why do you think we're so poor at tackling energy efficiency and what would you do? Well, just to add to that, from memory, we were not only the poorest performing developed country, we were the second poorest performing <laughs> country of all in transport. Yeah. Going back That's to our right. early point, the, yeah. only, the only less energy efficient nation in transport was Saudi Arabia yeah. for obvious reasons. Yeah. I think, I think very similar to Saudi Arabia, perhaps. I mean, I think the, the underlying reason for our poor energy efficiency is we got used to having cheap energy. Um, and, and this is all before the, the decarbonisation agenda was important. We just we had lots of stuff to, to burn relatively cheaply. Um, the energy-efficient nations were those where energy was expensive in Europe and Japan and potentially insecure, so subject to those international shocks that those economies um, were hit by in the 1970s. Uh, that led them to become very energy-efficient. We just didn't have those drivers over the last four decades. Um, the price of energy now is very expensive in Australia, and although we still have relatively secure supplies of energy, being an island nation with plentiful energy, the decarbonisation agenda has, uh, has, I think, the same driver force that energy security maybe had for Japan and Europe back in the 1970s. We've got to lift the profile of energy efficiency. I know BZE does great work on this. Climate Works has done great work on this. Um, the government's agenda for a 40% improvement by 2030 on overall energy productivity, I think, is good but is probably too modest. Mm-hmm. It really is not ambitious enough for the sort of improvements that we need just to get back with the pack. Mm-hmm. We are dropping so far behind uh, the rest of the world, OECD, but also nations like China that offer low base have substantially improved their energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. We've got to find some ambition in this area. Well, it's low-hanging fruit. It's the easiest thing to do. And it's a win-win. And it's win-win, Because it exactly. get cost, gets costs down for industry and for households that are really feeling the pain of expensive gas exactly. and expensive electricity. Correct. And just to point out that Saudi Arabia is investing heavily in renewables now. So I think we're the only ones that aren't. Um, Mark, you've got a section on fugitive emissions, which is an issue we covered last year with Tim Forsey and Dimitri Lafeu. CSIRO suggests that there is a serious underreporting and measurement of fugitive methane emissions in Australia, which is what you identify in your book. And given that methane has a stronger greenhouse gas effect, especially in the near term, how would you tackle this problem? 
Well, I, I say in the book that this is this is not something particularly identified in Australia. Um, the American authorities are also identifying, you know, with 1.5 million wells over there. They're also identifying underreporting over there in methane emissions. But they um, are actually measuring a lot more than we are. Yeah, they're doing much more measurement, and they've got NGOs doing a lot more me- measurement with infrared cameras hanging off drones. I think um, so. It's clear there's underreporting here. This is important, although it's although it's a shorter-lived gas. It's much more forceful as a greenhouse gas. Um, but, but the happy thing is that, that my advice is that, um, that with proper, proper willpower and investment, you can actually deal with this issue. Uh, fugitive emissions for coal mines is much trickier because flaring of, of, of methane in coal mining operations is very dangerous and incredibly expensive. It's not that it's not dangerous and it's not particularly expensive just to deal with your fugitive emissions from gas operations properly or gas transport, for example. And I think the industry would be well served um, given some of the reputational damage that the industry has suffered over the last decade, given um, you know what's happened in communities around Australia, it would be well served to apply its mind to getting those emissions right down because that is that's doable, it's viable. You just need a bit of investment. And I think the work that CSIRO's been doing now for a number of years to track this has been really, really valuable and just reinforces the really world-class work that our scientists at CSIRO do. So we need to support CSIRO in monetary terms? Absolutely. We took, a, we took a very big funding package to the last election to restore all of the cuts to CSIRO and a particularly strong package to rebuild the climate science capability in CSIRO. As people know, I'm sure your listeners know, CSIRO is part of uh, an incredibly important global network of peak scientific agencies that does a lot of monitoring and thinking about climate change, not just at Cape Grim, which is one of the leading monitoring stations in Australia, monitored by CSIRO. The defunding of that was a, was a very, very significant act of self-harm for our country. We've got to rebuild it. I realise we're out of your time, but very quickly, um, some states have banned coal seam gas developments. What's Federal Labor's stance on fracking? So we we did, I think, some really important work with Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott when we were last in government. This question of coal seam gas development was really just emerging in New South Wales with the coal seam that runs down the eastern coast. And, And those two MPs, those independent rural MPs, were right at the front line of emerging community concern particularly about water impacts. There are other issues around land, um, access to land, which is really a state government issue. But we took the view that, that, um, that ensuring water quality or maintaining water quality uh, was actually a national interest. Going back to our earlier discussion about the land, the land use question, uh, I think many of us were amazed to find that the protection of our groundwater is not a matter of national environmental significance under the federal legislation. Mm-hmm. It triggered no national powers whatsoever, even though a lot of these um, these water resources uh, cross state boundaries, you know, big basins like the Great Artesian Basin is obviously not conveniently located just in one state. Uh, you know, the, the surface water travels and moves mm-hmm. between state boundaries. Uh, it's hard to imagine something that's more of a national interest than water. So we introduced the water trigger. We put in place the Independent Expert Scientific Committee, which was designed to give some objective advice about project impacts, but also the broader science, uh, the, the broader science of hydrology and geology around these sorts of processes. Unfortunately, when Abbott came in, he tried to deconstruct all that, get rid of Commonwealth power, 
uh, and um, you know, stop farmers groups and environmental groups, for example, from taking court action when they thought the federal legislation had actually been broken. All of that was designed, I think, certainly had the effect of aggravating community opposition, not trying to deal with it in a constructive, mature way. We think there is, um, there is the opportunity for responsible onshore development of gas and we think there needs to be a mature discussion where the Commonwealth doesn't just wag its finger at the New South Wales Government or the Victorian Government or the Northern Territory Government. The Commonwealth actually brings something to the table. It says, look, these are the legitimate community concerns about these developments and this is how we're going to work through them. Uh, and I think that's what we haven't seen over the last three or four years from the Commonwealth Government. And frankly, we don't even see it from Turnbull either. Mm-hmm. All he seeks to do really is play politics, particularly in Victoria. Uh, and um, you can't wish away the depth of community opposition to this industry that I've confronted in many, many parts of the country. You can't wish it away. You can't lecture it away. You have to deal with it in a constructive, mature sense that seeks to improve understanding and, and, and the availability of, of, of advice about whether, in fact, these projects can proceed safely. Um, I'm sure you realise that there's a lot of deep despair about climate change and, and lack of serious action. How does that weigh on you as MPs and MPs' responsibility and for both of this and especially future generations? Well, I probably can only talk for myself and certainly conversations I have with my own colleagues, but uh, I... Um, the, the responsibility of this parliament, of the, the national parliament, to deal with the challenge of climate change weighs very, very heavily on me, not just because I have the portfolio, but because over the 10 years I've been in parliament, the, the scientific consensus uh, about climate change has only become clearer and stronger, and the impacts of climate change have already started to unfold before our eyes. I mean, when I started reading about climate change a couple of decades ago, much of the writing envisaged that these impacts would unfold in the 2030s and the 2040s. Well, yeah. they're unfolding now before our eyes. And, um, you know, if you do a lot of reading uh, on, on this stuff, you do recognise that, that ours, as I think Barack Obama said, ours really is the last generation with the ability to start to deal with this. And as a federal parliamentarian, I feel that responsibility very, very deeply. We've entered into international agreements that mean we have commitments to uh, other nations of the world to, to undertake a joint enterprise to deal with this. But more importantly, perhaps, I think we have a responsibility to future generations to deal with this. Because if we don't, the, the cost of dealing with it, the cost of the impacts and the transition for our children and our grandchildren are going to be so much more serious uh, than they would be if we just do the right thing. And if we don't start to do the right thing very, very soon, they are surely going to condemn us. Well said, Mark. Yes, thank you. Mark, your book is called Climate Wars, and I presume it can be purchased at any good bookshop? It can, and all of the proceeds that I uh, might otherwise receive, if anyone buys this book, are going to be donated to the Hazel Hawk Research Fund, as my last book was, to Alzheimer's Australia, um, a a wonderful organisation that will do great things with the money. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mark. Now, just one final question. If you had the freedom to implement whatever is necessary for the security of humanity, what would it be? Well, um, well, my particular area of, of interest um, and responsibility is around climate change. I think, I think if, we, uh, if we really apply ourselves to decarbonising our economies, and particularly to Australia's, which is such a carbon-intensive economy, we not only do the right thing by our children and our grandchildren, 
but we'll do some wonderful things for our economy as well. We have great resources here. Um, we can be an economy that that has massive comparative advantage with the rest mm. of the world if we mm. just make this shift. And at the same time, our air quality will be better and a whole range of other aspects of our society will be cleaner and greener. And that's going to be a wonderful thing. Well, that's right. It translates into health. It translates into... Yeah, we haven't it, even mentioned health, have we? Mm. That's that's right. such a big factor. And that's one thing that I wanted to mention. Your book covers so many more areas. We've only just skipped over the top of a few of the issues that you actually do talk about. So... I advise people to go and read the book because it is, is very readable. informative. Thank you very much. Mm. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you so really much. Appreciate that. Best wishes. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.